This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Sandra Bland, Ahmad Arbery, George Floyd. When we think through several of the, the countless names, the number of people, specifically African-American people, who have been killed unarmed, I think all of us would agree that these are things that are heavy, these are things that are mournful, and for many people, specifically black folks like me, it's just tiring, it's exhausting. And many people can get to a place where they wonder, what else can we do? What else can be done? What else can be said? How much convincing needs to happen in order to convince people that there are real systemic problems, systemic issues, things that should cause us to cry out, things that should cause us to mourn, things that should cause us to act. But even more so, what needs to happen to convince the church that this is a real problem and not just a series of individual problems, but something that is indeed systemic, something that is indeed structural, something that is something that has been a pattern, an ongoing, very frequent pattern for 400 years in this country. What do you do? In other words, what do you do when something appears to be so consistent that it seems inevitable? What do you do when pain and suffering feels and seems inevitable? When statistically it shows that it just doesn't really end, that maybe individual situations can be changed, but structurally things continue to happen. How do you have hope at the same time that you mourn a thing? How do you even find the strength to keep mourning? These are questions that we need answers to, and these are questions that people of uh, Christians have been trying to answer for such a long time, specifically with the issue of race in this country. And so we're left having to answer this question now as we are dealing with yet another death, as we deal with the death of George Floyd. And people are reacting in all kinds of ways, ways that reflect God's heart, ways that don't reflect God's heart, but, but ways that are rooted in frustration and anger and hopelessness. What do we do? Our story, as we walk through the book of John, I believe very sovereignly God has us in this chapter because this speaks directly to what I believe is one of the the premier problems of our day and arguably the the problem of the human heart from, from the beginning of the fall. This idea that we struggle to see God well, we don't see Jesus well, and so we don't see problems well. We definitely don't see each other well. I am often in the situation as a black pastor uh, where I will get phone calls from pastors, well-intended phone calls and good phone calls at times where people are asking, hey, I'm trying to figure out how to move forward on these issues so that my church can hear the message of the gospel and be moved to care about issues of racial injustice. But, but what do I do? What, what, do, I, what do I say? How do I, how do I respond to some of these things? And I can tell you that over the last 
I mean, eight years ago when I moved here to plant the church, the last six years of the church's existence, um, many of those conversations go in the same direction. Many of those conversations kind of look at the issue and say, well, I want to respond the way Jesus does. And so I want to figure out how I can meet people in their individual places and deal with their individual pain and speak to those individual issues. And yet where a lot of people are struggling is that they're feeling like, especially people of color, black people, are feeling like when they go to a church, they're not, they're not certain, they're not confident, or they're very confident that their issues will not be addressed, that the systemic uh, issues that they have mourned all of their lives will not be addressed from this predominantly majority or all white church. <clears throat> They're convinced that they will not be able to have their concerns dealt with or communicated to uh, with any real gospel fluency. In other words, we've got people who all claim to believe in Jesus, but our Jesuses do not say the same thing about systemic injustice. Our, our Jesus, depending on where we are, do, he does not speak to the same issues when we talk about uh, disproportionate policing of black people and the, the disproportionate number of people that are killed unarmed. If your Jesus does not have language to mourn and act against systemic justice, you do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. And the reason why people are struggling is because there are people who know that that Jesus is the Jesus of the Bible. They know the Jesus that cares about systems, that wants to mourn the things that, are, uh, that seem to be inevitable. They know that Jesus cares about that, but they don't hear that communicated from our pulpits. They don't hear that communicated from our podcasts. They don't hear that communicated from our social media feeds. They don't hear it. They don't see it. They don't feel it. And frankly, they're running away from it. There was an article a couple of years ago that talked about the mass exodus of uh, black people from large white megachurches. Folks who had started to believe that the church should be diverse, the church should be uh, reflect the kingdom that's coming. We love to say that all the time. And yet they go to the church and they realize that the church seems to be fully willing to incorporate uh, black people into their church and certain uh, music styles and worship styles they'll bring in. We want your singing. We want your talent. We want your voice. We want you to be able to say things that say our same message the way that you've said messages in your, your other churches. We want that from you. In other words, we want aspects of your black culture. We want aspects of uh, your, your black uh, talent but we're not willing to acknowledge your black personhood. We're not willing to mourn those things. So what is the answer then? If we're struggling, when people are sending messages now, what should I do? What can I do? What should my church do? Where should we be? The answer is gonna seem very simple, but I'm gonna tell you that it likely isn't. The answer is we need to respond to these things the way Jesus responds to them. You're going to think, oh, well, I'm good because I do that all the time. Not if you believe in a Jesus that doesn't really exist in the scriptures. The reason why we struggle with even understanding who Jesus is, if you've been a part of the church for any period of time, we talk about this often. God made us in his image, but our sin makes us want to remake him in our image. The very first sin in the history of mankind, the, the first sin of men and women, as we see in scripture, is Adam and Eve reaching and overreaching in order for them to seek some sense of supremacy over God. 
They were tempted with being able to see and know things the way God sees and knows them. They wanted to reach for supremacy. So listen, if the first sin ever is an overreach for supremacy in order to be able to be on the throne of my own heart, then we ought not be surprised when there's various forms of supremacy all the time. Every single sin struggle that we have is proof that we are fighting to be supreme in our own lives. So if I have that struggle with God, we most certainly will have that struggle with each other. What do we do then when that struggle for supremacy, no matter what it is, if my gender gives me supremacy, I may not name it, but I will defend it. If my race gives me supremacy, I may not name it, but I will defend it. And guess what ends up happening? The way that I believe uh, Jesus, the way that I see Jesus, the way that I describe Jesus, the way I worship Jesus is now bathed and baptized in my fight for my own supremacy. So when we say the response to these things should be the same response Jesus would have, my question then is, what does Jesus look like to you? How is, is, is the heart of Jesus oriented to you? Is Jesus, your view of Jesus, has that been inculcated by your fight for supremacy, whether you acknowledge it or not? Are there some degrees to which some of our, our views of Jesus need to be ripped apart and we need to almost see this Middle Eastern uh, ancient uh, God in the flesh that we need to see him maybe in ways that are not the lenses, not using the lenses we've been taught to use? I want to invite you to read through this passage that we're looking at and see how Jesus responds to things that seemingly are inevitable how he responds, how does he have, how is it that he enters into things that will inevitably not only bring negative things his way, but he's dealing with something that is certainly an inevitability for every human being. And yet somehow we see that Jesus brings mourning and hope, that he, he, he models mourning and hope. And he does those not at the expense of each other, but in concert with each other. That's actually how Jesus responds to pain and suffering. He doesn't try to muffle your mourning, but he also doesn't leave you drowning in it without any hope. So where do we really have hope? I'm going to read through this passage, and as we read, we're going to really identify a few areas where, where the, the, the very attributes of Jesus are on display. These attributes are the ones that we need to hold to, that we need to appropriate in order to love and to mourn and to hope in Jesus together. Let's start in John chapter 11. <clears throat> it's a famous story. We know the story of Jesus and Lazarus. We've uh, heard all kinds of stories and great analogies and object lessons uh, about what happens when Jesus does this incredible miracle. But I think that we miss some key things because of our own versions of Jesus. We, we, uh, we, we conveniently overlook the things that might force us to take a second look at who Jesus is. So let's take a look at this together. Verse 1. Now a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him. Lord, the one you love is sick. And when Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, his sister, her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, 
he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you and you're going there again? Aren't there 12 hours in a day? Jesus answered. If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this and then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Before we go further, there's some things in, this, in this, these first 12 verses that we almost, we could overlook too quickly because we want to get to the, to, the, to the main point of the story. We want to get to the kind of the climax of the story and we miss some major points here. The first point that we miss is this. Number one, Jesus clearly has this deep relationship with this family, these siblings, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, this incredible love for this family. Lots of theories as to the nature of, of just how close they were and how they became close. But at the end of the day, he's got this close friendship with Mary, Martha, Lazarus. So we know that, that hearing the news that his friend is sick on a very human level, he feels it, he realizes it, and he cares. But what's even more interesting is, as he, he knows that there's a good chance that Lazarus is going to die. Matter of fact, he knows he will die because he's God. But for, for, for humans to be listening to him, they're hearing him acknowledge the fact that Lazarus is sick, will likely die. They also realize this is an, an inevitability at some point. Everybody dies. But they're looking at Jesus and going, Jesus, Lazarus, he may be dying, but you're going to go back knowing what's coming? You're going to go back into that same environment, knowing that people are going to stone you, knowing that people don't want to hear what you have to say, knowing that the things you have to say are going to offend their own sensibilities so much. They're going to, their, their emotional fragility is going to be stoked up so much that they're going to come out against you. There's a lesson in that. Jesus is getting ready to go to save his friend, to resurrect his friend. His friend is, uh, for all intents and purposes here, his friend is dead is getting ready to die and is dead. And he knows this. And yet he's going to go to deal with this inevitable painful situation that everybody deals with, knowing that he's going to bring real pain on himself and he's going to go do it anyway. This should be the answer to one of the questions we ask when we go, why do we still go back into the same areas? Why do we still talk about the same areas that seem to be inevitable? Why do we still talk about the issues that bring death? Why do we still talk about uh, racial injustice? Why do we still talk about the things that we know are going to bring all kinds of negative commentary? We know they're going to bring all kinds of people that are just bringing nothing but godless rebuttals, gospel, not, uh, uh, rebuttals that are not gospel-infused, rebuttals that are not representative of, of the heart of God, and even more so, real attacks, inflammatory attacks assassination of character, or in Jesus's case, just flat out assassination. When you look at the history of civil rights uh, uh, leaders back in the 50s and 60s, why would they continue to say things that they know are going to incite people to want to kill them? Why do we keep doing it? For a lot of people, they could just say, you know what? It's not worth doing this. They could have said to Jesus, Jesus, going in to deal with the fact that this death thing that hits everybody, you're going to go handle that there. All you're going to do is deal with more problems from people. Because guess what? If you raise him from the dead, we, they already know the miracles that you've done. So the moment they hear that you raised uh, uh, Lazarus from the dead, all it's going to do is bring more negative things your way. It's not going to bring anything positive. This, sound, this should sound familiar. 
Why do we still enter into, even as a church, why do we enter into and dare to bring the heart of God to bear on things that inevitably will bring negative things our way, your way, my way? Why do we do that? Because it truly is not about us. It's not about how we feel. It's not about how, how hard it is. It's hard and we need support, but it's not about that. Jesus here, he's like, it's not even about me per se. It's not about my fear of people doing the things that they may do to me. It's not about any of that. And then he says, it's interesting, he says, aren't there 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. What motivates us to go into these dark, heavy places over and over again? It's not because of us. It's because we truly believe that the light, the very heart of God is on display. We truly believe that we believe that God's heart is outraged on a thing. So guess what? Whenever God's heart is outraged, we're outraged. Whenever God's heart is hope, gives us hope, we're hopeful. Anytime God's heart leads us to mourn, we mourn. Why do we do it? Because we're following his light, not our own. Listen, if I'm following my, my own light, there are times I just don't even want to go into some of these things. I don't, want to, there are t- I don't want to have to try to walk into a hope that I, in my own human flesh, don't feel. And I'm sure many of you feel the same. What if I, I know that my faith tells me I'm supposed to be hopeful, but I don't know how to be hopeful right now because all I'm feeling is this mourning, this frustration, and even resignation at times. I can't trust my own light. I can't trust my own feelings. I can't even trust my own emotions. Even if my emotions are real and a response to something, I can't trust that alone. There's got to be something else. And so when Jesus says uh, there are 12 hours in a day, anyone walking during the day doesn't stumble. The only way that we can engage hard, dark things is to do it through the light of Jesus, not through the illumination of our minds alone, not through all of the research that we do, not through all of the posting that we do. It has to be illuminated by the light of the world, by the light of Jesus, by the gospel of Jesus, being informed by the things that he cares about. That's the only thing that should motivate us. That's the only thing that should keep us going. Sometimes that's the only fumes we can live off of. So Jesus says this. He said this and then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Now the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will get well. Because again, they're, they're still thinking about the fact that Jesus, this is still going to bring bad things uh, for you. And we don't, and which means it'll probably bring bad things for us. We don't want that life either. So Jesus, just, if, he's, if he's just asleep, just let him get well. You don't need to go do it. You don't need to go do the work. You don't need to um, uh, bother yourself with these things. Y'all, we feel this, I'm sure. For many of us, we feel this. Why would I want to go do this? Why, why can't somebody else go do this? Anytime that God's heart is not on display, we need to show up. Anytime God's mission calls us to step up, speak out and act, we need to show up. Jesus did it in the temple when he protested, damaged private property for the sake of uh, focusing on the injustice in the temple. May not even have to talk about that right now, but we should. And so Jesus demonstrated anywhere where I see the kingdom of God not on display, our job is to show up even when it's hard. So whether you're black, whether you're white, you're going to feel exhausted in different ways. But we don't have the luxury of shrinking back. As long as the light of the world is still light, we don't have the luxury of shrinking. So Jesus is uh, on his way to go 
wake up Lazarus. And see, they don't quite get that language. Jesus is telling them he's fallen asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. He's using metaphoric language, symbolic language to describe real death. They don't get it. They're like, well, if he's just asleep, he'll get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. Verse 14. So Jesus then told them plainly, look, y'all, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. And then Thomas, called twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. I always find this to be really funny in a way because many times you see the disciples, and I actually think Thomas is in some ways a good example for us. You may not have thought that before because we just think of him as doubting Thomas, but there's something uh, innocent and something I think that's even commendable about Thomas's posture here because he has no idea what's really going on. Thomas doesn't really know what Jesus means. He doesn't understand when he's, he's hearing, okay, Lazarus is asleep. Okay, well, just let, let him go. Oh, he's died. Okay, I don't really get this, but I'm going to follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. In other words, I may not understand exactly what you mean yet, but the best I can do is still say what you say. If he's dead and we're going, we're following you, okay, we're going to go uh, with him. If, if, if that's where he is, if that's where you're going, we're coming with you. He didn't really quite understand. Let's, let's go so that we may die with him. He didn't really want to go die, but he didn't understand. Sometimes when you're trying to, to, to be an advocate, when you're trying to be an ally, when you're trying to be close to someone else and they're doing the work of the Lord or they're, or they're mourning because something isn't, isn't right, you may not understand everything. You may not understand uh, much of the details, but you trust the heart of God so much that you're like, I don't understand it, but I realize I need to be there with you. And so I'm going to be there. The language that you use, your language will be my language. The pain that you have, I want that pain to be my pain. The direction that you're going, I want that direction to, me, to be my direction. I may not understand exactly how we're getting there. I may not understand what the actual destination is yet, but I trust you. I trust the heart of God. And so I'm going to follow you. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I can even quote it and not really know that I'm quoting it right, but I know that your heart is there. And so the disciples get, they, they start to leave. In verse 17, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. So we see here, death has already happened. The inevitability of death has won out once again. The disciples could have almost felt like, why do we come here? We've just risked, we've risked our lives by being here in order to advocate for the life of another. So what Jesus did, risking the life in order to advocate for the life of another. And here they are going, we did all of this and he's dead. So, so much so that it's been four days. So many of the Jews has already come out to comfort. They're probably already getting ready to hire mourners, possibly, because that was a real uh, thing. So to mourn for the funeral, people are preparing for all these things, and they see that he's dead. They know that he's dead. Jesus finally shows up. And as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. We were talking about this before and we've preached through this before. And it's very interesting, the, the approach that we typically take when we see uh, Martha's response here. Sadly, and I think 
Part of it is because of, yet again, this, this lens that we look through in our own supremacy, how we see Jesus. If I'm, if I'm white, I'll see Jesus as a white Jesus, a Jesus that cares about individual stuff, not corporate stuff. If I'm a man, I'll see Jesus as protecting manhood in this misogynistic way. And so when I see Martha, I see her as a snarky woman who's just trying to complain to Jesus and call him out and go, but if you weren't here, he would have lived. But now my brother's dead and I'm mad at you for it, as if he's blaming her, as if, as, as if she's blaming him, as if she's She's being accusatory, but really she's not. She literally is just speaking truth. She's literally acknowledging who Jesus is. In many ways, this is a praiseworthy statement. She's saying, I know that you are the son of God. I know that you are God in the flesh. I know that if you were here, he would have lived. And because you're here now, I know that he can live again. Martha is showing more faith in Jesus than almost any man we've seen up to this point. You're seeing Martha literally look at Jesus and see him as the Messiah. And she says, yeah, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus looked at her and said, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I think about that for a minute. Martha's got some really great theology here already. She's, you, this is one of the first women you see actually respond with real fluency, real kingdom language, real kingdom fluency. She understands the truth of the resurrection. And so Jesus says, he's going he's gonna to rise. And she says, well, I get that. I know. I believe truly that the resurrection is coming. I believe in that. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. This is an incredible admission. If we had the time, it'd be great just to spend time just focusing on how big of a deal this is for this woman to be proclaiming as a witness who Jesus is, to, for her voice, for her testimony to be highlighted in ancient scripture like this is a huge deal. It should change even the way we look at women's voices, frankly. But beyond that, when you see just what she says, it shows us something. Even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of our pain, even in the midst of gaps, not understanding why a thing happens, we still hold on to the things that are true and Jesus comes and fills in those gaps. We've got to be okay with holding the things that we know are true. The things that are painful are painful, but the things that are true are still true. So we've got to be able to hold on and go, Jesus is still on the throne. Jesus is still king. Jesus is still on a mission. His mission is still at work. He is not done. He is not through. He is not surprised. And I know that anything that he asks from the father, the father will give him. Why? Because I know that he is the son of God. He comes into the world. You know what Jesus does? Jesus comes in and says, all the areas of your, tr the things that you believe, whether true or false, when we are submitted to him, he will fill in the blanks or correct our faulty theology. The, the reason why I believe, even as we talk about the inevitability of racial injustice, the reason why it's such a hard time seeing churches be so divided is because in many ways, churches are believing in two different types of Jesus. And some churches are so kind of calcified in that way of seeing Jesus that they have not, we have not allowed Jesus to come in and correct our faulty understanding of him 
And so we hold on to a false Jesus and then we promulgate that Jesus out to other people. And then they are now trying to mimic a Jesus that never existed. But here, Martha, had, there's no possible way that she can believe in a Jesus that isn't real because he's come, he's shown up, and he's filling in the gaps the ways that she doesn't quite understand, even with her good theology, it's still incomplete, right? Any theology without Jesus is always incomplete. doesn't matter if you can find it in scripture. People love to go, I got scripture here, I got scripture here, I got scripture here. If your scripture, if your theology is devoid of the heart of God, the very mission of God, the very person of God, you have bad theology or incomplete theology. And so here Martha is getting that aspect of her theology even completed anymore. Having said this, verse 28, having said this, she went back, called her sister, Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And as soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quick, quickly and went out. They, went, uh, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. That would make sense. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? This part of the story is one that has always given me, I've always responded with this question. I remember being younger, always wondering, knowing the story, and we all know how the story ends, right? We, we know eventually Jesus ends up resurrecting Lazarus. The question I would always have is, why would Jesus weep here when he knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. What's the point of mourning if you know that hope is coming? Why would he, why would he do that? You know, I think that this is, a big, this is a big lesson for us. You see, because whenever there are hard things, whenever there are difficult things, whenever there are things that are uh, causing a large group of people to mourn, sometimes our answers to be able to help uh, support them. Many ways, we just silence their mourning. How do we do that? Well, if I'm mourning, here's how, honestly, here's how oftentimes churches, especially white churches, whenever there's social injustice, if they do say anything, which is rare, but if they do say something, oftentimes it will be, this is sad, but we know that the, that a day is coming where we won't have to deal with this anymore. And so we look forward to that day. I'm reminded of uh, a time that I was invited to go speak at a conference. And it was a conference for folks from churches from all over the country. And uh, this conference was helping people to understand what it means to be about real community, to be formational, and what it means to love each other well and to be the church, right? This was a conference where folks, the leaders had prided themselves on uh, trying to be kind of counter-cultural and, and maybe kind of go against kind of the, the huge machine model of the church. How do we help people to be close and, and to be fully formed and all this. And so I had been invited to go and, and speak about issues of racial reconciliation. And there were some groups that we were forming to help people do that. 
and so I had uh, I had been invited to go, and so I get there. Uh, I was uh, one of the one of the only African Americans that were there to speak, which is okay, and had been used to that. And while speaking there, um, I got up to talk about this, to so talk about God's heart for all people and God's heart specifically for those who have been marginalized, God's heart for black and brown people and what it means to be able to love them well, what it means to, to bring people together, to hear their pain, to, to help mourn uh, with them, and then to be able to advocate for. And in talking about that, I was talking about the history of the church and the relative silence of the church on certain issues of injustice. And after I was done, one of the leaders of the conference came up behind me and just said, I'll be glad when we don't have to worry about any of that stuff anymore. Amen. All right, let's move on to, and then just moved right into something completely different. And it was completely silent. You could feel like whatever, whatever inertia was being created in that talk sucked out completely. And I feel like that in many, in many ways, there are people who have felt that way in churches all over. Why? Because in many ways, people will acknowledge that there's something worth mourning. Maybe they don't know exactly what it is, or maybe they'll even minimize, right? They may, maybe they'll minimize the issue to something bite-sized that maybe they can handle and maybe they can mourn. They may do that. But then right afterward, they'll go, you know, that's sad, but here's what we know is true. What we know is true is that eventually sin is going to be ended. Jesus is going to come back and we're going to be all good. That is not the approach that Jesus takes. If anybody can say that's not the approach, it's Jesus. He happens to be the one that is coming to make everything all right again. He is the one that's the, the, before or at this point in the story. He's the one that's getting ready to be resurrected. He's the one that's getting ready to promise who's going to be resurrected. He's the one that's getting ready to promise to make all things new again. So if anybody could have said, why are you guys? No need to mourn, guys. No need to worry. I'm getting ready to change it all. See, he already gave them that hopeful message and said, I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring Lazarus back. And yet at the same time, he mourns. Why then? Why does he mourn? I was saying this earlier. There's no way if there's somebody that I love, and I know that I'm getting ready to save them, and I know they need to be saved right now, I wouldn't stop and take time to just cry and mourn. I would go to try to rescue them right away, right? We're problem solvers. We're good solutionists. If people need help, we're just going to go help them right away. Why does Jesus mourn? There's a few reasons. Number one, Jesus knows. What does death represent? What is death a constant reminder of? Death is a constant reminder that God's good creation has been invaded and infected. Death is a constant reminder that the way in which God originally designed life to be has been radically perverted. And every time we see evidence of the things that should be but aren't, anytime we see that, it should move us to real mourning. Jesus is moved to real suffering and mourning because he realizes not only is my friend, there's a personal piece. My friend is hurt. Lazarus is hurt. And I, and I care about my friend. And I care that he's dead right now. But he knows he's getting ready to raise him. There's something even deeper. I am so heartbroken over the fact that the idea of death is a systemic cancer. It's a systemic enemy. Life was never meant to be lived this way. Life was never be meant to live in such a way where it ends. We know that in the garden. What did God say? The sin of Adam and Eve. When you disobey in this way, you will surely die, both spiritually and physically. Death was never the original design. 
It was never the original plan. And you know what? Every time we see things that are but this, but should not be, we ought to be mourning every single time. Our staff were talking uh, earlier uh, this week, and we were talking about just how Whenever these issues happen, right? Whenever horrible and unjust things happen, whenever people, uh, some of these horrible deaths that have occurred, when those things happen, it can feel like a broken record because it, because it is. Lazarus wasn't the first one to die from being sick. Tons of people had died from being sick, especially back then. They didn't have penicillin. They didn't have vitamins. They didn't have medicines. They didn't have any of those things. People died all the time, all ages, very regularly. So, so here, death was a very common inevitability. And yet Jesus steps in and goes, I'm getting ready to stop the death of this one here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reverse the death of this one here. And yet he weeps. He's showing us something. Our job as Christians, if you say you care and you say the whole WWJD bracelets that were popular way back when, I want to do what Jesus does. I want to love how Jesus lives. Can you mourn? Will you mourn like Jesus mourns? Even if you know what the good news is on the other side of it, will you mourn like Jesus mourns? Listen, people will never feel safe with you if they don't feel like you can mourn with them. They'll never feel safe if all you can do is mourn for them and not mourn with them. When Jesus weeps, he's weeping with Mary and Martha. He's weeping with the friends of Lazarus, and he's weeping for Lazarus. He's weeping not only for that. He's weeping because he was with God and he, God the Father in eternity past. By all things, everything that was made was made by him and through him. He was there at the beginning. Jesus knows how things should be. He knows that death shouldn't be uh, the answer, that death shouldn't be the final word, that death shouldn't be invading. He knows that shouldn't happen. The same way he knows that racial injustice shouldn't happen. The same way he knows that, that the death of unarmed black people shouldn't happen. He knows those things and he weeps, even though, yes, we know for sure that that will change at some point. So the question really is, are you able to mourn while still holding a hopeful message simultaneously? Or do you get so overwhelmed with the mourning that you try to rush too quickly to the hopeful message? Because in many ways, when you don't have the mourning married to the hope, the hope starts feeling really empty. When you have mourning, uh, or when you don't have mourning married to hope, you start having this very hollow feeling of hope. You have this hollow sense of like, oh, that's great, okay, wonderful, things are going to get better, but right now, I'm feeling overwhelmed. Right now, I'm feeling exhausted. Right now, my very air is being sucked out, and I can't breathe. You see, there's something about mourning and hope that begins to oxygenate again. We begin to be able to breathe again. There's almost a spiritual respiration that's happening. There's this breathe out, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, mourn, hope, mourn, hope. If all you do is inhale the whole time, you'll die. If all you do is ex exhale all the time, you will die. Jesus shows us mourn and hope together. So right now, if you've got brothers and sisters uh, who are black and you happen to be white and you see your brothers and sisters there, learn to mourn with. Doesn't matter if you get it all. Learn to mourn with. Churches, if you're out there and you're saying, I don't know what it means, I want to be able to be a church that has people that can feel safe here. And it's not just on racial issues, any issue. If there are people there that you're like, I want different people, different cultures, different folks to feel safe here. The question is, do you have the language necessary to collectively mourn the issues that are plaguing those communities? 
because shared language for mourning leads to shared language for restoration. Shared language for mourning leads to shared language for hope. Shared language for mourning leads to shared language for repentance. When all those things happen, now we have a real united body. So you see, when Jesus stops and he weeps, he weeps because he's seeing the systemic effect that death has had on God's good creation. That's who we should be. I look at the, I look at the individual aspect of Lazarus and feel broken and feel sad. And I look at the systemic effect that death has had on the world and I mourn it. And, I'm, and it can't just be, I don't have to mourn anymore because I have the answer. So Jesus weeps. Shortest verse in the Bible, but probably one of the most impactful. One of, one, it's a verse that if we truly understand it and we allow it to form us and we allow it to shape us, we become real lovers of our neighbor. We become people that start to really look like Jesus. Not one that we've remade to look like us. Not one that we've remade to protect some form of supremacy or to, to protect our levels of comfort. Sometimes, listen, mourning is hard. Mourning is draining. Trust me, mourning can be overwhelming when you've got loads and loads of people that are mourning things. Sometimes people are mourning things that you're like, don't get me wrong, not all mourning is alike. There are times when people are mourning things and that's more of a reflection of like issues of their own supremacy are being challenged or, or issues of their own comfort are being challenged, so they're being mourning. Y'all don't do that. And please don't try to equate, don't play the oppression Olympics with people. If they're mourning, enter into their mourning. If they're mourning because there's a, a huge loss that has occurred specifically systemically, don't bring up the issue of like, you know, and I've been feeling really bad too at home because I don't have the same things to watch anymore or my kids have just been really loud lately. Listen, those things are hard. Those things are issues for sure. I got kids, I've been home with them for two months. Those things can be issues. That's not the kind of thing that requires the same kind of mourning that we're talking about here. We've got to be a people that know how to mourn and how to hope, not just because we want to feel good about ourselves, but because that's who Jesus is. And if we're saying, I want to show people, not me, I want to show people Jesus, then Lord, give me, if I don't know it, Lord, help me to see, help me to learn how to mourn. If we're coming from the types of American churches that we likely have come from, that means, Lord, help me how to mourn systemic injustice. Help me to learn how to mourn real corporate sin and not just try to cover it up, not just try to overlook it, not try to uh, bypass it and jump so quickly to the hopeful message. Because sadly, much of the hopeful message we think we're giving isn't hopeful at all. And it's not just because, oh, they must not know Jesus the way I, I know him. They're looking for the real Jesus you don't seem to know. And we need to make sure we know him first so that we can love well we can hear well, we can mourn well, then we can help people hope well. And so here you see Jesus, Jesus wept and the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he uh, who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? You've got people who are doubting, wondering, they're looking for any reason to still throw shade at Jesus, to still go, eh, I don't really know if that's still him yet because man, here he is weeping. Sometimes it's interesting, it just hit me, but people, uh, if they already don't like the message you're saying, they can't wait to see you at your lowest moment to be able to call certain things out that are completely false. They can't wait to see you at your lowest, the place, the place of your weakest times, your most vulnerable moments. And then they want to take that time to be able to go see if he really was the one that he was supposed to be, that thing wouldn't even be a problem. He would have already solved that. 
Sometimes we do that to people. We'll say things like, if you have the hope of Jesus, why are you mourning? If you have the hope of Jesus, why are you crying? If you really believe that Jesus is who he said he is, this shouldn't even, we should never talk to people and try to talk them out of mourning. We should be able to enter in, but that's where they were. They wanted to find a reason to almost question why he was mourning. And then you see Jesus, verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's already a stench because he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Beyond just how incredible of a story that must have been, it's hard to almost visualize what that looks like. Some people have said like you almost imagine like the zombie pictures of a guy who's wrapped up in linen and all of that. It's an incredible picture of something even deeper though, right? Because Jesus, he's already known he's going to do this. He's getting ready to do this incredible miracle. And he's already wept uh, over the fact that this miracle is even necessary. He's already wept over the fact that systemically death hits everybody, right? But here's what's really, really interesting. So I've already talked. We've talked to the people who struggle with mourning, who just want to jump to hope. But we also need to talk to people who get the mourning piece, but we struggle with even acquiring real hope. And I say this as someone who struggles. It can be really hard when you see injustices. It can be really hard when you see death. It can be really hard when you just feel like there's no end in sight. There seems to be no real hope on the surface because every time we get to a place where it looks like some steps are made, something happens where we go all the way back in reverse yet again. It can feel hopeless. And what Jesus reminds us is we need to mourn the things that are definitely broken, the things that are wrong, the things that bring real pain, the things that, real, that bring real suffering. But we also need to be a place where we go, I realize that Jesus is bringing life again. Sometimes that's all we can hold to. Jesus is bringing life again. You know how we know that we are more like Martha in this story? When Martha goes, I hear you, right? Many of us are like who've been in church, especially if you're black, African-American, you've, you've heard that. Yes, I know resurrection is coming. Yes, I know Jesus is coming, but you don't understand. The real death that we're dealing with in this country, the stench is overwhelming. I was born with this malodorous aroma around me because the stench has always been so strong. I was born seeing the rotting carcass of what it means to live in this society. I've seen the pain over and over again. I hear you telling me to hope, but I don't see evidence of hope. Neither did Martha, neither did Mary, neither do we with our natural eyes. I can look around right now and I'm being honest, when I turn on the news, when I look at social media, I don't have any human sense of any real hope. I see some platitudes here or there, but I don't have any real, from a human perspective, I don't have any real uh, ideas of, of real hopeful messages coming out from people. I don't have any real hope that systemically people are going to start actually caring about the disproportionate death rates of unarmed black men and women. 
I don't have any hope to go even beyond black folks. I don't have any hope that people are going to care about the disproportionate justice that faces brown folks, indigenous people, all kinds of people who are marginalized. I don't have a lot of hope that systemically people are going to do anything about it. I would love for that to be proven false. I don't have a lot of hope in that. I barely have hope that people will care about things individually enough. I for sure don't have a whole lot of hope on the systemic. However, what this proves is that our eyes cannot be the final arbiter for hope. Our eyes cannot be the final truth teller for hope. Our belief in who Jesus is, our belief in his words, our belief in his actions are the main, the primary, the only exclusive place from which we derive real hope. So brothers and sisters, if you are like me and you are struggling with hope right now, if you're struggling with holding on to this idea that there is a Jesus that genuinely cares about this, that genuinely wants to bring real change, not only is he bringing real change, but we need to be advocating and searching and worshiping whenever we see evidences of that right now. Don't shrink back. Don't give up. Don't get to a place, both white and black, who are allies who care about this. Don't get to a place where you're like, it's just so overrun right now that I just give up. Because you know that there are some people for whom the option to give up isn't there anyhow. But don't get to a place where maybe if you're in a place where socioeconomically you can put yourself in a place where you feel like you can be removed enough. That's not necessary either. That's not the answer. The answer is I mourn and I hold on to this hope. This hope that in the same way Jesus completely rolled the stone away and brought forth the impossible. Here's the thing we got to remember. We know that Lazarus had to die again at some point. He didn't just keep on living. So Jesus didn't end death once and for all here. Jesus, uh, the, the, this man was going to die again, and they were probably going to have to mourn his death again. But what Jesus did was he does what he tells us we're supposed to be doing. Jesus gives this small foreshadowing of the final death of death. So our job is to give little foreshadowings of the hope that's coming. So where's my hope? My hope is in the resurrection, but it's not, it's not a, defer, a, a delayed uh, hope. It's not a deferred hope. It's a very realized, actualized hope right now. I have hope in the resurrection. I have hope that what he says in Revelation, that he's coming to make all things new. He's coming to renew all things. He's coming to renovate all things. The broken systems that are here, they're going to be done with. They're going to be demolished. They're going to be burnt down. This is the one time where we're going to look at the systems that are here being looted by the kingdom of heaven, and we will be rejoicing because that's coming. We can hold on to that and not act like it's defrayed or, de or deferred because what we can do is go, now, let me look at all the examples where I see pictures of that kingdom that's coming. So when we see people, when we feel motivated to, to, to still uh, speak out, to protest, to, to find ways locally to vote, to advocate for people who are not being cared for. Those are the little ways that we still show that we have that real hope. The reason why we care for each other is, yes, we're humans and we care about people, but we know our sin nature is there. We know we get really, really selfish. So it's got to be more than just us. The hope is that the very God that reconciled me back to himself is reconciling me to other people, which means I now am on mission. I'm joining him in his mission to reconcile all things, albeit imperfectly here, showing a picture of the very perfect reconciliation that's happening on the other side of eternity. That's our hope. That's what we hold on to.
That's our greatest joy. Our, I, honestly, I can't tell you how to be happy right now, but I feel like Jesus tells, shows us where we can at least fight and wrestle and claw for joy. And y'all, I'm wrestling. I am fighting. I am clawing. And many times I feel like I'm failing. But what I do know is that if the resurrection is true, then we have hope not only in the after, we have hope in the now. And so if we want to be people that love like Jesus loves, we have to be people that mourns like Jesus mourns and communicate the hope that Jesus brings. When we do those things together, then and only then are we able to love well, be reconciled well. You can't have one without the other. We can't have one at the expense of the other. So we hope and we mourn. And we do that not because we're so strong. We do that not even just because we're so faithful. We do that because he has been so faithful to us. So as we mourn the loss of yet another person, as we mourn, as we mourn George Floyd, as we mourn uh, for his family, as we mourn the varied responses that people are having because of their own pain and because of their own hopelessness, my prayer is that we would be a people that, that we don't mute or silence our mourning. I even pray that our mourning gets ramped up. But I also pray that we are people that can bring real hope, not the hope of some type of kind of colonized, um, uh, 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 almost supremacist view of Jesus. We don't want that. We want to decolonize our faith. We want to, de we want to rip away the false views of Jesus and then go, now that's a hope that we can hold to. That's a hope that's compatible with my morning. That's our hope. That's our prayer. And so today our prayer is that we would indeed be a people that genuinely loves like he loves, hates what he hates, mourns the way he mourns, and hopes the way he gives us hope. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so, so much for the ways in which you promise to enter into our pain, to enter into our fear, to enter into our frustrations, to enter into our complaints. Father, you can handle every single frustrating feeling, emotion, thought that we have. God, I pray that you would meet us even in the things that we think that we ought not think, but that we can bring those to you. We know that you understand those things, but we also know that you come into our hearts and you root out the things that aren't like you and you bring us your real hope. And so God, wherever we are, whatever race we are, whatever ethnicity we are, whatever uh, our family of origin is, whatever our views are politically, God, I pray that you would uproot the things that are not like you uproot the views of you that are not right. I pray that you would uproot the ways in which we see ourselves. I pray that you would, we would see ourselves the way you see us. I pray that we would see each other the way that you see us. I pray that you would call us to a place where we can mourn and hope in the way you do it, and not just in and of ourselves. God, I pray that you would restore real joy, restore the joy of our salvation, because what you're saving us from is also reflective of what you're saving us to, what it means to be reconciled in all things. So God, reconcile us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's receive this final blessing, this benediction from God for us. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever and ever. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you.
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.